over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show. April, I suppose there is some irony to be found in the fact that my undergraduate degree is in costume design and my master's is in fashion history, and yet I just do not sew. Well, (laughs) I can't particularly comment on that a lot because I don't sew either. Um, My mom tried to teach me how to sew when I was a kid, and she was always a huge crafter, making like all kinds of different things my whole life. I grew up around sewing, knitting, quilting. She made baskets for a while. Um, she, She even kind of mastered the art of smocking. And at one point, she was making like luxury mohair teddy bears and selling them at craft fairs. You know, she she tried. I just wasn't interested. I think it was like my preteen rebellion phase. So, but, but I do have to say, I would love to be able to make my own clothes today. So I do regret it a little bit. But not being able to sew is not the case with our guest today, April, because where you and I have a podcast about fashion history, today's guests live and breathe fashion history. Yep, that's right. Lauren Stowell and Abby Cox are the women behind American Duchess, an all-encompassing title that refers to their historical shoe company, but also their various pursuits as historical customers, ranging from dressmakers and wearers to authors to fellow fashion history podcasters. Right. And we are thrilled to have them both with us here today. Welcome, Abby and Lauren. Yay! We're excited to be here. Um, I feel like I know you guys from like Instagram and your podcast, but this is actually the first time we are officially meeting, I guess. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I'm very excited to have you here. You guys actually bring me great joy on the daily. I'm kind of fangirling out. (laughs) (laughs) Your guys' passion and love for what you do really shines through. So thank you for that. Um, We're really excited to have a chat today about historical costuming. Yay. So like so many of our guests on Dressed, uh, I was introduced to you both through Instagram, where there's this incredibly large worldwide community of historical dressmakers and costumers I just had no idea about. Um, So for our listeners who might not know, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly is historical costuming? Do you want to take that one, Lauren, or do you want me to take that one? Oh, gosh, I think we could probably both tackle that one because it's a big... um, it's a big thing. So everybody kind of has their own facet of historical costuming. Some people come at it from a theatrical angle. Some people are reenactors. Some just like to sew. Some like the process of sewing. All of that is encompassed within historic dress, which is, I guess, most simply put, uh, people who like to make old clothes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like cosplayers for history and even bigger nerds. Cosplay for history. I love it. Cosplay for history nerds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, 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 it encompasses so many different time periods, different cultures and people. Uh, there's so many aspects to it and everybody kind of has their own thing. Um, so that, mm-hmm. I guess that's it, it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like there's costuming and costumes and then there's historically accurate costuming, which is what you two both do, right? What role does that play in your work? Yeah, like it's not where I started. I just wanted to wear pretty things. Yeah, and I definitely came into it from a much more nerdier academic 
pursuit. Like I came into it from a different angle. Um, the whole concept of getting dressed up and going to events and looking pretty was came after the fact. And I was like, <laughs> oh, hello, this is great. I love this. Yeah. And we kind um, of ended up at the same point working together, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> writing books. <laughs> but I became more interested in the historic aspect of it and the accuracy aspect because I find it really fascinating. The mm-hmm. process of making something in the accurate way teaches you a lot about clothing construction and why people did things. And I think at the at the bottom of all of it, why people do things is what interests me most about, I guess, humanity. And mm-hmm. so I explore that through dress. Yeah, it's the same for me. It, you know, the... When you look at an original garment in a museum collection and you can see the story of how the garment was put together, but then also how it was worn in its lifetime, knowing that it's that in a weird way accessible makes it fun to pursue. Uh, Trying to make your clothes that you're making in the 21st century look as similar as possible to the antiques that you look in the museum that were made in the 18th century or 19th century, it there's something really satisfying about it from a very nerdy perspective. And just for everyone out there, so you know, we're all Ravenclaws in this office. So like there's a Harry Potter reference for you guys. We're all Ravenclaws. So that totally helps, I think, define how we think about these things. But, you know, even if you're not into the trying to do it as super accurate and period correct as possible, you know, it, it's still enjoyable regardless because sometimes, man, that serger comes out and you're just like, oh, yeah, baby. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be accurate. If that's not your thing, then you shouldn't have to do it that way. And that's sometimes that causes tension in in groups and whatnot, like on Facebook, where uh, often you'll see posts that are tagged non-HA or HA and, and to just state somebody's intentions because mm-hmm. some people accuracy is the most important and only thing. Mm-hmm. And for other people, it's, I want to make a pretty dress for, you know, my, my local event. I've mm-hmm. never done it before. And I'm just beginning to explore that. So we're all on that journey. Um, but people, again, to go back to the very first question, mm-hmm. um, people have different intentions and different focuses with doing this. And all of, all of it is valid and all of it is welcome. Yeah. Do you guys remember the first like, historical garment you made? Yes. Yeah. How could we forget? I feel like Lauren, you might have just posted yours on Instagram, actually, or the very early yeah, men's yes. coat that you made. Um, going way, way, way back. There's different abominations from that period of my life. <laughs> the very, very, very first was this bustier thing that I, I sometimes share it on social media. <laughs> it was after the Ren Fair. Um, the first Ren Fair, and I was like, ooh, I want to wear velvet too. And so I, my mom and I went to the fabric store, bought this like 90s bustier pattern <laughs> and some velveteen, which I probably ironed like an idiot. Um, I didn't know how to bring the pile back up, and neither did my mom for that matter. And I made this thing. I had no sewing experience. It was not an easy thing to make. In fact, my mom kept getting mad at me and like, taking it out of my hands and doing it for me because she'd been sewing, you know, for most of her life. But I, I put these like huge grommets in it, you know, the, the like industrial size grommets and made the holes too big and one of them tore out. And it was just, it was awful, but it made my, you know, boobs look great <laughs> it, in its way. I wore it once. Um, you have to start somewhere. <laughs> thing. I wore it for Halloween. I was the devil. Um, that was my very first sort of like attempt at sewing something. And then it got... It got better from there, but still not good. But <laughs> yeah, I, it's 
probably the first I, verse. I actually regret not having those dirty little secrets hidden in the back of my Facebook they're account. They're secrets. No. They're on the internet. No. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I feel kind of silly that I don't have something like that with, like, a 1990s bustier with crushed velveteen. Um, because... When I learned how, my grandmother tried to teach me how to sew, but I had no interest when I was 10 years old. I was more interested in sports and friends and horses and stuff. But so when I learned how to sew, I was, I was older. I was in my twenties and I was learning how to sew in, in college and university in a class setting. And then I, when I was between my junior and, and senior year of undergrad, I had my internship at the millinery shop at Colonial Williamsburg. And that's also where I really, really learned how to hand sew. I had a much, um, I don't want to say safer, because I don't think that's right, but less embarrassing. <laughs> uh, I don't have as many embarrassing photos, and I kind of regret it, because, man, I would really kill to have a funny photo of me in, like, a brocaded, like, nasty drapery gown that I made, and it doesn't fit. Like, I wish I had that photo. <laughs> you never made anything out of blackout curtains and wore it to a Renaissance fair at 110 degrees? No, because my family believes in throwing money at the problem, so my mom just bought me one instead. <laughs> oh, my God. So I do have a blue velvet uh, uh, Renaissance, quote-unquote, medieval gown, Woo! but it was not made by me. It was Who made by somebody else one? and Does sold it have, at a like, Renaissance fair. like, sleeves that have the puffs that come through them? Yes. Yeah. It was navy. Yeah. It was, it was uh, navy blue. Uh, cotton velvet and I wore a white snood with metallic oh that's right you did yeah I white did snood. everybody has you know how hard anyway. it was to find a snood in the early 2000s it was very difficult <laughs> I think in honor of this episode I'm going to encourage people to post their first historical costuming attempts <laughs> so here's here's some art school terminology we all get very precious about our work right but the point is, is that everybody starts somewhere. And some people, like Abby, start, you know, at a higher level than others. Like no, I wasn't hey. good. It's just I don't have as much evidence. Yeah, but as, as per today, you usually make better decisions than I do. <laughs> uh, but we all start somewhere. And I think it is important to go back and look at those things and, and realize that, you know, yes, we've come a long ways, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. That's, you know, we're serious when we need to be. We, we footnote when we... When we need to, yes. but uh, the rest of the time, it's like, this is supposed to be for fun. And, you so know, damn it, we're going to have fun. <laughs> we're going to have fun and we're going to share these things because people who are starting today need to see that the people they follow online are not perfect and that we've, we've never been, you know, no. um, and we're human and we like to share those things. That's good. Cause Instagram's very good at making it feel otherwise. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. The beauty of social media. Yeah. But um, you mentioned it a little bit, but you guys actually have both turned historical costuming into very successful careers. So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about American Duchess or a lot about American Duchess and actually how it came to be. So back in ye old 2008. Back when, when the there world, was the recession. When the world ended for college graduates. <laughs> like us. Uh, like me. <laughs> like Abby. Yeah. I, I graduated in, in 2007. And um, I was 08. Yeah, so Abby was 08. So right into the recession, um, I actually did get a job. I was designing giftware for a, a giftware company that made, made like tchotchkes, like uh, figurines. And But my hobby was historic costuming. I was getting really into it. I was going to dances and, and fairs and whatnot a, a lot. So I was making stuff. 
And I decided to start a blog on Blogger because that was the thing to do back then. Yes, it was. And I started I started um, a blog called The Barn Owl Gown. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> I know, brilliant name, Barn Owl Gown. And it was about one, one dress I was going to make. I was going to be a barn owl for Halloween, um, but it was going to be like a historic version of it. Um, turned out to be a utter disaster with a lot of feathers. But, I remember that gown. I liked it. Well, it somebody wears it to Burning Man now. So anyway, <laughs> uh, so I, I was making this gown and I realized I really liked blogging and I was doing it at work. <laughs> the company's now out of business. So, you know, I can say this now. I was doing it at work. Um, shame on me. You still blog at work. <laughs> I still blog at work. That's true. <laughs> And, and I, I got into blogging and I changed the name. Um, the Duchess had come out at that time and I really liked, you know, the, everybody really loves The Duchess, the movie. And so I sort of kicked around some names and, and named it American Duchess. It was very catchy. Um, so I was blogging and blogging and blogging. And I, I moved, um, I left my job and I moved back to Reno where I grew up in about end of 2009. And I was freelancing. And when basically what that means was I was barely scraping by <laughs> doing a lot of things to try to make money. Again, it was recession. So I was selling stuff on Etsy. I was doing freelance illustration. I was just doing anything, always trying to come up with some sort of entrepreneurial idea to turn into a business. Um, and so one day it, I kind of hit upon the idea of shoes. And it seemed like something that was really missing in historic costuming. Nobody could find pretty shoes. There were shoes. There were shoes, yeah. there were shoes for, you know, being outdoors, camp following, um, you know, very hard wearing black leather shoes. But there, there weren't any really like pretty 18th century or lady you shoes. Know, Victorian lady shoes, for, lady shoes for the silk gowns and the pretty printed cotton gowns. And so I thought, well, that looks like an opportunity. And. Long story short, um, kicked around, found a manufacturer, got very, very lucky and opened up a pre-order for one style, just one um, 18th century shoe, which, which we called Georgiana after the Duchess of Devonshire. Seemed very fitting. And it was a dyeable silk shoe. Um, it did very well. It did the pre-order, which was, like, pre-orders weren't even a thing at the yeah, time. This so. is my favorite American, like, <laughs> this part of the American Duchess saga is my favorite part of the story. I need my popcorn for it because I always love when she tells this part oh, of the story. Gosh. I better get it right now. Just <laughs> the part about the fire or the part about... All of it. PayPal. Um, All of it. <laughs> so the pre-orders weren't really a thing at the time, and so PayPal... Uh, actually tagged us, tagged my, our PayPal account for fraud because they didn't have any kind of uh, system in place to handle products that were sold before they were made. And they froze the account. So I was on the phone to PayPal. I was like, PayPal, I need the money to pay for the products to get them made, to send them to the people. And they, they did give us enough money to uh, of the money that we'd earned to do that. But it was a long process because... That one run of shoes, it was all completed and made, and it was on its way to us in the truck on the way to the airport from the factory, and the truck caught fire. <gasps> oh, no. So <laughs> lucky. Very. This is why I say we were very lucky, because normally I don't, I don't go in for like, oh, my God, I'm so lucky, because we work really hard, and I believe in intention right. and, you know, that. But in this case, in the American Desert story, we have had luck, like, purely the factory actually remade the entire order for us for free, 
because it was still covered, I suppose, by the factory's insurance um, before it, it really left. So they that's very rare with manufacturers. They usually want you to pay again, which we didn't have the money for, um, but they remade it for free and sent it to us. But it did take a long time. So it was a very, very long time before PayPal was satisfied and released the rest of the funds to us because they needed to see that things had shipped and been delivered. And some of those deliveries had to happen in Australia. So it was like months and months and months, like like half a year before this all kind of came to fruition. But it did. People were happy. And then we did, you know, another shoe and then another. And it snowballed from there um, into, I mean, again, this is seven to eight years now of history, but into this, this legitimate company. Um, I had to kind of learn how to pull my socks up and be a business person. Um, I always had the idea that, oh yeah, I love business, I can do this. But there are a lot of concepts that I did not understand that I've learned along the way. Um, they're, they're not as sexy and glamorous as I like to make historic dress and I dress up. It's That is part of it, but the the business side of it is also part of my identity as a, as a person. Absolutely. Um, that I don't often share online because it's, mm-hmm. It can be it can be rough, um, but it's it's also um, very satisfying. It's it's who I've become in my life. Yeah, I mean, there is something to be said for the fact that it's kind of a lot of people just assume that what we do is we sit around and we make pretty clothes all day, and I think maybe that illusion is actually a good thing because that it means that we're making this look easy. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, even though it's not. Is. And we work really, really hard. Um, but yeah, we do get to make clothes, though. Yeah, we do get we do get to make clothes. I get to make fewer clothes, less clothing, few, fewer clothes items yeah. um, than I used to. Mm-hmm. As business goes along and I'm busier and busier running the almost the administrative side of it yeah. um, and the financial side of it. I don't get to sew as much. So that is still very precious to me. I'm still like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't get in trouble for blogging at my job anymore, but I still try to steal time away to to do my own projects. Yeah. Um, That's something I'd like to get back to more, uh, making making more clothing myself, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And in all your spare time, ladies, you actually have time to write books or a book, The American Duchess Guide to 18th Century Dressmaking. And we're going to hear all about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here talking with the lovely Lauren and Abby of American Duchess about their book, The American Duchess Guide to 18th Century Dressmaking. And ladies, I especially love the subtitle, How to Hand Sew Georgian Gowns and Wear Them with Style. Can you please tell us about this book? Yeah, so our first book, like you said, is The American Duchess Guide to 18th Century Dressmaking and How to Hand Sew These Gowns and Wear Them with Style. That I think I wrote that title because we had a bunch of different titles and that was my most long-winded academic one. I personally liked Whip It Good, but yeah, <laughs> Yeah, they didn't go for that one, unfortunately, <laughs> even though there's a lot of whipping involved in, in dressmaking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's about, in the book, there are four chapters, basically, uh, spanning basically 
the last half of the 18th century, where we make a gown and all of the accessories to go with it. We explain how to do it. We have patterns in the book, how to put these things together and try to demystify 18th century dressmaking because a lot of people find 18th century dressmaking very intimidating when the reality is it's very straightforward and logical and practical uh, once you kind of get down into it and you stop overthinking it, which I can go on a whole long spiel about overthinking and costuming and sewing, but that's a different story for a different day. (laughs) Um, The way the book came about is actually really weird. Um, Totally random. It's totally random. (laughs) Lauren and I did not pursue this book. Let's see. I signed my contract to come work for American Duchess. Was that... It was like March. March, April of 2016. Yeah, but but you weren't going to come here until August. August. Yeah. So between that time of me signing the contract and me moving to Reno, Lauren was sent this email from an editor from Page Street Publishing, Lauren Knowles. So this happened in the summer of 2016. And with book writing and things like that, for those who don't know, the whole contract process um, can actually take a lot of time. So we didn't really sign the contract to write this first book until September or early October of 2016. The crux of this was they wanted the manuscript by the end of February of 2017 so they could publish (laughs) the book by November of 2017 for Black Friday. No big deal. And we, being geniuses, and I use that term very sarcastically, um, decided that, yes, we were going to do four gowns and all of their accessories in a matter of months, in addition to the the daily running of the business. Um, So that was a lot of fun. And we, so, (laughs) so if you actually look at the history of American Duchess and what we did over the course of, of that year of the end of 2016 and early 2017, you'll notice that we actually didn't get a shoe collection out until well into 2017 because we had, I suffered. We actually had to bring in um, our friend Maggie to help us sew um, because there was just no way we were going to get it done. And yeah, somehow we managed to do four gowns and all of their accessories by hand in just a couple of, in just a few months. And were you guys using 18th century patterning? Yeah, we cut and draped everything on our, on each other. So um, the blue wool gown, I draped and cut that to Lauren's body. The sack gown and the 90s gown, Lauren cut and draped on me. And then I cut and draped the Italian gown on Maggie. So that's why when you look at the book, if you look at the lining patterns for the book, there are all sorts of different measurements because we were, we're all different sizes when that book was written. Um, well, hell, we're all still different sizes now. But so that's why we're always like, make a mock-up. Don't use these as like, you know standard sizes because we did it the 18th century way of cutting to the body. Right. And it's a beautiful book, I have to say. And it's affordable. And it it really does make this seemingly daunting task, which is hand sewing, approachable. (laughs) Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. (laughs) We tried really, really hard. (laughs) Yeah. My sister and I, I have to tell you this story because my sister and I have always been mutually obsessed with 18th century Marie Antoinette era since we were very, very young. And she's now an epidemiologist and I'm a historian who doesn't sew. But I, in preparing for this interview, I sent her a picture of your book and I said, this is the year we are making our own 18th century gowns. And so we have committed. One year. year. (laughs) And to plug our second book, Without Shame, 
uh, in July, on July 9th, you can get the second follow-up book that will teach you how to do all the hairstyles and makeup that you would possibly want to achieve your Marie Antoinette costume. And more cats Goals. and hats and more accessories. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we, we wrote our second book. This, uh, this last year? year? 2018. We, 2018. we spent book. most of 2018 doing it. Half of 2018. Um, so it's in production right now and it's, it's coming out July 9th. And mm-hmm. we're very proud of it. We learned a lot of lessons from the first book. Uh, we used studio lights so that we could work on the projects and photograph them any time of day. And very quickly. Very quickly. Um, you know, we wrote shot lists and it was, it was, it's good. I'm very happy with how the second book mm-hmm. is turning out. Um, I think it's going to be lovely. Did you all do your own makeup and hair? So we make the products, we use 18th century recipes for pomade, powder, oh. rouge, um, uh, ma- other makeup. and Well, it's uh, common pomatum, hard pomatum, marshall pomatum. White hair white powder. And marshall. Marshall powder. Like all of these yeah, rouge. original recipes. So we make all that stuff. And Le then bon. we do all the hairstyles from 1750 to 1790 mm-hmm. uh, wow. with the cushions and whatnot. And then decorate them with the caps or the hats. And, and so it's everything that you need from the shoulders up. Yeah. So you've made the gown and all of the millinery from the first book. And the first book does have like hats and what and caps yeah. in it. But the second book is like more, more. and it deals with the hair as well. Mm-hmm. So what to do on top of your head. Yes. And then you buy your American Duchess shoes and you're set. Exactly. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps one of the greatest joys of being a part of this historical costuming community is sharing the fruits of all of your hard work. And this can be done on Instagram, on your blog, or at any number of events around the world. So I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little bit about some of these costuming events that you attend, such as the Costume College and the Jane Austen Festival. Oh, yes. Uh, Well, those are just two examples, as you say. Mm -hmm. Events happen everywhere. Like, I would love to go to all the events in Europe. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, But when you make this stuff, I think a lot of people, because I was definitely like this, a lot of people... They have the desire to make the clothing and then comes the, well, where the heck am I going to wear this stuff? Why am I making this if not to wear it somewhere? And so you find events or you make events. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane Austen Festival has been going now for years in Kentucky. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful event. And the population just expands. growing. Um, the attendees, I should say, not the population. It's, it's growing as fast <laughs> as the humidity rises in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, and Costume College has been going for 20-something years. Yeah. And, and what is that exactly? Costume College, it, it it's a bit of a misnomer because it is not a college. It is a learning event. It's a long weekend, so it's about mm-hmm. Thursday to Monday is about as far as you can stretch it. It takes yeah. place in Woodland Hills, California, so LA, LA area. And it's it's interesting. So you, you go, it's mostly historical, but all are welcome. So steampunk and cosplay and Lolita and everybody's welcome. And during the day, there are classes taught by other people in the community, uh, all, all kinds of things. So you can learn to make uh, a scabbard out of leather. You can learn. Warbler. To- I learned how to work with Warbler one year. Yeah, you can work with Warbler. You can learn about um, their surveys of historic dress. Mm-hmm. You can learn about courses. You can learn about Instagram, which is one of the classes I teach mm-hmm. Instagramming for your business. Um, I've taught a lot of hair classes at Costume College. Hair, hats. I mean, it's just kind of what people submit the classes it's entirely volunteer based and then uh the committee will choose you know the curriculum so it's different every year sometimes you get the same courses taught and sometimes you get different Mm -hmm. things 
And then in the evenings, there are events. So you have like the ice cream social, which has a theme. Everybody dresses up for it, for the themes. Well, you're not required. You're not required. No pressure. It's, it's the fun part. And then the Saturday night, there's a a gala Mm -hmm. and a dinner. Red carpet walking. The red carpet. I mean, it's very lovely. So some people dress up during the day, others don't, but it's a huge historic costume convention. It is not a reenactment event. No. It's sort of like an anything goes event. And it's very uh, welcoming and supportive and a great place to meet people, Mm -hmm. um, especially costume bloggers. And it pulls people from all over the world. It's not just California. So people come from, um, Mario comes from Finland and Kathy comes from England. And Mm -hmm. there's people from Australia who come. Germany. Germany. Um, It's really cool. And it's growing. So we definitely recommend Costume College, especially if you're a beginner Mm -hmm. and you want to kind of like get more involved and learn things and meet people. Um, It's a great place to to do that. So we've talked a lot about different facets about historical costuming. um, And I'm kind of hoping you can talk to the challenges now. You recently posted about cramming five go-go girls into a Ford Focus on your way to a festival, which I found hilarious. Um, But it's challenging to be in this historical fashion in, you know, the modern age. So how are you able to reconcile the two? Are there any specific challenges that you face in doing so? I I mean, I think it's one of those things where the juxtaposition is part of the interesting experience. um, Because today we're all about oversized chairs and comfy vehicles or, you know, racing seats in our cars and squishy things to sit on. And that is what we associate with comfort. But when you're sitting on those types of furniture pieces in a corset or hoops or a bustle or or anything like that, it's not comfortable. You don't like it. Um, And so you kind of get this weird experience where what we consider comfortable for the modern um, age is horrifically uncomfortable for the past. Um, So things like cramming into a a Ford Focus (laughs) uh, with all of us wearing, being a yard wide um, in 1830s clothes. It was, it was a fun experience because it, it's that juxtaposition and that's a challenge. Um, but it does make you appreciate historic furniture and travel practices um, in a, a much more realistic way. Because I think a lot of people might look at a shaker chair and go, oh my gosh, how could they sit on a wooden chair for hours on end? That just looks so uncomfortable to me. It's like, nope. Well, first they didn't sit for hours on end. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if I'm in a corset, I'm going to look for the hardest chair possible so I can perch on it. Um, Because that's more comfortable than trying to flop into a lazy boy. Yeah. Everything in our world is made for uh, clothing and and the things that we live with are inextricably connected, mm-hmm. um, as Abby says. So especially with the cars, like when you look at the development of the interiors of cars yeah. and you look at the development of clothing, especially headgear and hats and hairstyles, you see uh, it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing with cars specifically. Headrests, I think, did away with with hats. I think that had a major... They played um, into each other. Because you hit your, your brim of your hat on, mm-hmm. on your headdress. Um, hairstyles as well changed when you have the safety things that come into play in automotive design. Um, and I know that this is being very specific because you mentioned the Gigo girls and the Ford Focus. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it is everything in our world. Like we're sat here in these great big office chairs with, 
with arms. And memory foam padding and stuff. <laughs> sit here all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've been in historic dress and plunked down in front of our desks, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day. And we usually take a picture because it's funny because it just doesn't work. You get like hoops mm-hmm. flying up, you know, around mm-hmm. the, the the arms of the chairs and whatnot. But um, it's an interesting way to look at the world is when you're we- when you're wearing historic clothing from the skin out, you can feel the very personal uh, bodily feeling that people had when they wore those clothes. But the interaction with the world also teaches you something about what their world was like. And that quote, the past is a foreign country Mm -hmm. really becomes apparent there because it's, it's, we, we have such a hard time connecting with it. It's entirely romanticized in our minds. Like we try, but nothing, nothing works the same as it did. Um, So well, it's, it is part of the challenge of trying to connect with the past when yeah. nothing around you is is helping you to do that. Yeah, I mean, just with um, the 1830s specifically, we joked the whole time that we were all T-Rexes because our like arm <laughs> mobility just completely changed compared to even other time periods. Like if I'm in an 18th century working gown, I can do whatever you put in front of me. I've done CrossFit in my stays and petticoats before. Um, but when I was in the 1830s gown, I just felt like a T-Rex because I couldn't put my arm out to reach my teacup. (laughs) You know, so your body moves so differently and, but it's a great educational experience because you realize how you move is completely about the world that you live in. And that when you put on different clothes or anything like that, it changes your posture, it changes your deportment and the concept of ladylike versus what is not ladylike or what is rude or not rude. It makes sense because the clothing plays into that. Right. Not being able to reach above your head. No, in 1830s clothes, that that's a no, especially if you have a gown that is really off the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, but then those types of gowns that we were wearing were definitely fashion fashionable gowns. Yeah. so why would a fashionable lady with exactly. servants ever really need to reach above her head no um, she does need to reach her teacup though which <laughs> maybe was, you just made it wrong abby how, oh! i know first off <laughs> i could reach my teacup just fine well this could lead us into the whole conversation of going to the bathroom in the historic dress versus oh, modern yes. bathroom plumbing <laughs> and well, and all the of that of the toilet yeah and the rise of women wearing trousers yeah i learned this one I've been aching to talk about this. I don't, I don't know if this is the uh, right place to talk about this. So if this doesn't, if this isn't nice, please just edit it all out. But go for it. There are places in the world, many places in the world. France is one of them. China is another one where they have toilets in the floor. Mm-hmm. In Japan, I was just in Japan and they have them still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, toilets in the floor. Totally fine for a man. If you are a person that is used to doing that that squat where you can keep your heels on the ground, mm-hmm. it's no big deal. But I can't do that. I have uh, I can't touch my toes. I can't keep my heels on the floor. So I wear high heels, even a little bit of high heel, whenever I know that there's going to be a loo that is of that design, and then I can you know do that. A little squatty I potty. Have to wear is a dress. I have mm-hmm. to wear a skirt because. When you are a woman and you have to drop your trousers, you are dropping it into slop, essentially. Yes. It's very nasty down there in the mm-hmm. toilet. Um, and so your pants being on the floor is not something that you want. It's very filthy. It's disgusting. You know, so and, and when I'm doing that, I often think about pre-sitting toilets 
uh, society and women wearing skirts and dresses. Well, at least they can bring it to them. Yeah, they bring the, the skirt up and then you can do your business. Yeah. Um, and that, I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, oh, it's oppression for women to, you know, men made women wear dresses and skirts. I'm like, no, women just had to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Honestly, that's, I think that's, <laughs> that's very much tied to... Well, it goes into the whole thing of modern underwear, too, because that's actually where I thought you were going is. And it was where I was going. <laughs> yeah, OK, um, because this was a funny conversation when Lauren and I first started really spending time together and working together. Oh, God, that you and, make it sound so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and and costuming is I learned during my tenure at Colonial Williamsburg and I spent time, you know, all day, every day in costume. I stopped wearing modern underwear. Because when you have your shift on an under petticoat, a petticoat and a gown, you got a lot of layers to deal with and you're going into a modern toilet. So that means that you have to sit down to go. You can't bring, you know, the gravy boat Bordelow to you to relieve yourself. You have to go to it. And Lauren was like, I remember I told her this and she just looked at me like I had like five heads. (laughs) My health things changed. (laughs) And she was like, I could never do that. I'm like, oh no, it's amazing. And it makes life so much easier. Um, well, split drawers existed for a reason. A reason. And, <laughs> and it's one of those things where people go, they didn't wear underpants. That's how that's. And they were like ladies and, and proper. And it, it's like, you try going to the bathroom in a silk sack gown with hoops on in a modern toilet. And trying to pull everything up and then pull your underwear down, it just doesn't work. It's like, yeah, it just doesn't work. It's doable, but it's not. Something's going to get damp and you're not going to be happy yeah, with it's, it. Yeah, it's not nice. And it's mm-hmm. it's hard to get it all back up on there because you have a stays or a course that come down. I mean, yeah. it's those kinds of things. And I know this is probably embarrassing to talk about and share on the internet, but those kind of things, you do think about them in costume. How the heck am I going to go to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Which leads to the... Why did people do things the way that they did? I'm like, yeah. oh, because the sit-down toilet hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. Oh, of course. That's why. Um, anyway, so that, again, modern challenges uh, with <laughs> historic dress. But a lot of people think, oh, it's uh, the people in the past were, were stupid. Oh, they crushed their bodies with corsets. And yeah. They wore these contraptions. Like, we're talking about hundreds of years mm-hmm. of women's dress. It really isn't that big of a deal like I feel perfectly comfortable wearing his oh, yeah. dress so long as I know what what to expect and that comes from the experience you know with going to the bathroom with getting in a car with yeah it's of course it doesn't function in our modern society the way that it did in the past because no. nothing's made for it yeah it's like you're going to be uncomfortable sitting in a car in an 18th century or 19th century gown usually you, when you have a foot of hair on top of yeah, your head <laughs> you're just going to be uncomfortable because you were never meant to be in that vehicle in that costume if you get into a carriage suddenly everything works everything works and it's great shocking and you feel fabulous and on that note we are going to take a brief sponsor break when we come back we're going to talk about historical accuracy in film and tv Welcome back. So I want to turn the tides a bit and talk about historical accuracy in film and television, because for me personally, it's very much this love-hate relationship. So I'm really curious to hear what you two think about it as well. Okay. Yeah. Anything specific? I mean, I don't know. I think anytime you go into a period of film, you just don't really know what to expect, maybe. Um, 
The th- first thing I always look for is, is the woman wearing a chemise under her gown? So if a costume designer has done that, because a woman would always have had her chemise gown on, as we know, then I can relax a little bit. But so often accuracy is sacrificed in the making of film, like the hair and makeup specifically. But I don't know if there's any particular films or television shows that I th- that you think are better than others, maybe? start there. Oh, absolutely. I think the one thing I look for now is did Sandy Powell design it? Because if Sandy Powell designed (laughs) it, it's going to be incredible. Um, Or Milena Canadero. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are not a lot of historically based uh, TV and films that we can watch without finding something wrong with them. Yeah. Uh, Everybody can do that. And sometimes some people, it can ruin the experience for them. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's so bad. You're like, oh my God, I can't watch this. Yeah. But most of the time, um, I mean, my background's in animation illustration. I did a lot of character design mm-hmm. and visual development work. And with that comes costume design, uh, sort of in a roundabout way, is the costume is meant to support the story, the characters in the story. And yeah. there's a color palette to consider. There's lighting. It's all part of production design. So... Most of the time, that's what the focus is. And there's many moving parts in a production. It's mm-hmm. not just the costume designer working mm-hmm. on their own. Or having so, the final say. Or having the, they never have the final say. Uh, so you have to sort of appreciate what the point of mm-hmm. it was in, in the film or in the TV show. But that being said, there are some productions that I'm like, holy crap, this is really, really well done. Yeah. And the costumes are not a distraction to the historic costumer. They help with the story. They help. The one I watched recently was Vanity Fair um, mm-hmm. on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's new. Yeah. There are many versions of Vanity Fair, but this is the newest one. Yeah, that's been fun. I'm on episode three. It's outstanding. The costumes were not a distraction, as I said, but they were they were a feast for the eyes. It's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Her bonnets is, were awesome. This is really, really well done. Mm-hmm. I was so well done. And I almost never go and be like, guys, you have to watch this. But I was she telling did. our group, like, this is so good. And I shared it on Instagram stories. And I was like, you have to watch this. It's great. Like, they didn't F anything up. It was fabulous. Ah, oh, yeah, the men actually look good. <laughs> There's tailoring. Um, as opposed to something like War and Peace. Um, I didn't even watch that one. I heard so many horror <laughs> stories. I just <laughs> Which one? Audrey Hepburn, War and Peace? Or is there a more recent one? The most oh. recent one, right. With... um. Lily James in it. Mm. And some of the, like, some of the uniforms, I'm like, wow, those are great. With all the Russian braid, all of them, like, oh my God. And most of it, I'm like, what are they doing with these horrible M-notch collars? Like, oh my God, the fiddle that is terrible. And I watched the whole thing and... It's, uh, uh, yeah. But I, I, you know, I'm not going to go on the internet and I'm on a podcast right yeah, now. You're on a podcast. I think there is a blog somewhere. I think a customer has started a blog that's like, "What's wrong with this film?" Yeah, there's something really good. I wanted to point out. Um, speaking of Sandy Powell, the favorite because you haven't seen, I haven't it, seen yet. it yet. Oh, so the Ooh, favorite. I just I saw that. It's, yeah, it's so good. I think the favorite is a really great example of taking historically accurate silhouettes. And then Sandy Powell works her magic and she throws in these very interesting modern choices and color palette decisions. Like the use of black and white and geometric shapes in these mantuas was incredible. And the use of laser cut lace was awesome. Sweet. And there's progression too as the film 
as the film progresses, so too the costumes. So they're almost telling their own story, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, Rachel Weiss's character and her her very historically inaccurate, culturally, but historically accurate cut male garment choices. Um, right. And Lauren's, I have to, I want to explain to you oh, what happens, but it's really good. It. But I mean, that movie, Sandy Powell took an extremely unknown time period, a very unloved, unloved time yeah. period, and she made it accessible. She made it interesting. She made it beautiful. And she was able to put that modern touch in there that was that made it cool, I think, for people who are not costume history nerds to be like, right. oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the favorite was was awesome. But I will yeah. say, Lauren and I have a favorite costumey movie, <laughs> and we've got to shout it out. Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette from oh, 2006. Yeah. yeah, that one is yeah, it's such a good movie. This will invite the ire of some people because yeah. it's a very divisive <laughs> movie, but the yeah. Milena Cananero's work in Marie Antoinette Incredible. was just incredible. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, yeah. Awesome. And there's other parts of the movie that, again, this is the love-hate, so some people really love the soundtrack and this kind of oh, 80s teen so vibe. Good. I love it. I loved the converse that mm-hmm. were hiding out in you know mm-hmm. the background of the shot. I totally got it. And actually, the history is pretty spot on, too. It's very subtly told, yes. but it is accurate history. Some people freaking hate that well, they movie. They filmed it in Versailles <laughs> in the light. I was actually thinking to myself about Marie Antoinette and Sofia Coppola and I was like I wanted to have a like Sofia Coppola month of just being like thank you Sofia Coppola for making such a beautiful movie and doing it such justice as the director. Well it made um, a very big impact on it the changed, historic costume community. It did. I think it's responsible for I think Dangerous Liaisons to some extent but it's quite old. Marie Antoinette and the Duchess coming out so close together yeah. made uh, 18th century very, very popular. So that's probably, I would say, the most popular mm-hmm. time period for people to absolutely to work on right now. It used to be Victorian bustle. It will probably be something else in the future, but right now yeah. it's 18th century. Yeah, the groundwork was absolutely set with Marie Antoinette coming out. I think, too, and this is the juxtaposition of the Duchess versus Marie Antoinette, the use of color and how it's being used to tell the story. You know, the Duchess is a even though they, they're both sad movies in their own way, The Duchess was always kind of a certain level of depressing throughout the whole thing. And the palette is very and the, somber. And the, yeah, and the palette reflects that where, you know, Marie Antoinette, there are the candy colors and the bright colors and the pinks and the blues and the golds yeah. because you're in Versailles and well, that's... The, the palette literally came from a box of macarons. Yeah. That's what Sofia Coppola says in, yeah. in the extras that yeah. used to be on DVDs. Yeah. Is, oh, yeah, we got this box of... Probably Lauderay. Yeah, because they provided all of them, yeah. That makes perfect sense now that you say that. But if you look at original gowns, you see those colors. And so that's what I love about it is that I think a lot of people see a lot of somber toned movies because of how the mood is being, how they're trying to portray mood or class. And they they don't realize how much color existed in the 18th century and how fun the clothing could be in the 18th century. And that's why Marie Antoinette is... It works works perfectly well with how Coppola did the movie because she does not end it with how Marie Antoinette's uh, story ends. She never got there because it was about the candy colors. I mean, the last shot in the movie is is Versailles, her bedroom being sacked with the chandelier on the floor. And that's, that's all you need to know. And it's the end of the macaron shop candy color. Mm. Yeah. It's the destruction of that. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I love that movie. 
And it's been very, I thought it was really, really well done. Some other ones, um, Tulip Fever is fantastic. Oh my gosh, yes. And not it's not just um, period films. You mentioned Vanity Fair, but there's also um, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is set in 1950s, which the designs on that are just incredible by Donna Zakowski. Downton Abbey, Anna Marie Scott Robbins. Yep, yep. I think that's one of my all-time favorite costume moments in history. Um, and uh, a lot of people share it when Sybil comes out in her Poiré and Worth harem trousers. So. Yeah, just so many wonderful TV shows and films. So before we go, this has been wonderful. I am hoping that you guys can tell me um, if there is one period in history or a day in history that you could go back in time and be there, where would it be and why? I think the first thing that comes to mind, well, let me preface this. I never feel like that feeling that sometimes you hear people say of like, oh, I was born in the wrong time. Oh, I wish I could go back in time. I, I don't really want to go back in time to live there. Correct. One day. <laughs> I would probably die really fast. Um, but I, I think I'd love to be in Times Square on VE Day. I think that would have been something incredible. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I thought long and hard about this, I could probably come up with other individual days. But I, I think I'd like to have a time machine and go back and just peer into, you yeah. know, a, a shopping street in London, for instance, to see how people shopped because yeah. it was very different than it is today or how people ate at restaurants, very different than it is today. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to hang out and stay there for very long. No, not when you consider the state of healthcare or women's rights or any of that stuff. <laughs> we, we actually had a very long conversation about how impossible it actually is to time travel. Uh, first, everyone needs to get a smallpox vaccine before you go back in time. Exactly. Uh, so, um, but I was actually going to say that, Lauren, that I, I'm not interested in seeing a specific moment in history um, because so many of those moments in history are very violent and scary. Right. But yeah. I would love to go back to... Paris or London in the 18th century and go shopping. That's what I would like to do. And just get that experience for the sheer fact of being the textile and like costuming history nerd. It's like, okay, what does this fabric actually look like? What colors were available? How can I buy this? What, how did people live that? And just go shopping on like the best street in the trendiest area. And then Get out before I get robbed and get smallpox. Well, ladies, thank you so much for being here today. This was really fun. Awesome. Thank you for having us. We've had a really great time. Yeah. And um, before you go, can you tell our listeners how they can find and support you? Sure. Yeah, you bet. Um, we're all over the place. So AmericanDuchess.com is our website. Mm-hmm. Uh, Royal Vintage Shoes is also our website. So the old shoes versus the slightly less old shoes. <laughs> the old, old versus the old. <laughs> We're also on Instagram at American Duchess. We have a YouTube channel now, mm-hmm. which we are populated with uh, videos. videos as mm-hmm. fast and as best as we can. Mm-hmm. We actually have a Patreon as well, American mm-hmm. Duchess. Uh, so if you'd like to help us create better videos and podcasts and whatnot, you can mm-hmm. go and support us there and we give you perks and sneak peeks and all kinds mm-hmm. of good stuff. Yeah. Uh, where else are we? If you don't Facebook. mind us plugging our podcast too, Cassidy, we have a podcast. No, please do. <laughs> um, and that one's called Fashion History with American Duchess. And uh, we're not as steady as you <laughs> when it comes to production. Fits and starts. But yeah, we, we do. Ooh, we, but- we put uh, episodes out there. Uh, some really fun ones um, that we're excited about. But yeah, so Instagram, Facebook, blog.americanduchess.com. Oh yeah, YouTube. the blog, that thing. <laughs> that thing you started. And with. yeah, our uh 
First book is out on Amazon, Barnes Noble. You can probably find it in a bookstore. You can find it on our website. website. Our second book is, I don't uh, know when this uh, episode will be published, but it's probably out for pre-order now. Yep. Um, So, and that will be published July 9th. And what's that called? The American Duchess Guide to 18th 18th Century Beauty. Beauty. Thank you, ladies. Thank you both for being here. Cass, I have to know, if you could pick one day to go back in fashion history, what would it be? That is a tough one. And I have to say, it's something I actually think about and fantasize about quite often. I would love to have attended any number of balls thrown at the Palace of Versailles during the reign of Marie Antoinette. Well, of but course. hands down, yes, naturally. But hands down, I think if I had to pick one event, it would have to be Paul Perret's Thousand and Second Nights Party thrown in 1911. I mean, you read all at the time about the sights and the sounds, and I imagine the smells. It was really this phantasmagoria. And if I showed up in my modern day attire, I would have been stripped of it and given my own Poiré design costumes. So mm-hmm. the reverie, I just, I can only imagine. <laughs> what about you, Wood? Where would you go? Well, first of all, I would probably insist upon being your plus one to that yeah. fabulous party. Naturally. Absolutely. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> Um, but as a fashion historian, the intersection of war and fashion has always been one of my particular interests. And and, and I have to say, I want, I want to preface what I'm about to say um, with the fact that I recognize this is a very dark time. But I think I might want to take myself back to Paris during the Nazi occupation. And I say this because the way in which women used fashion as a weapon and as a form of political resistance and national pride during this time period, despite these like horrific times, as a fashion historian, I find it really super inspiring. And we've had a few listener requests for an episode on this, um, but I have spoken about this on the past on an episode of the podcast Stuff You Missed in History Class, which our producer, Holly Fry, co-hosts. So if you want to learn more about that time period, you can go check out their episode to learn more. Absolutely. And you must check it out. It's a must, I must say. And that does it for us today, Dress listeners. No matter the time period you love best, may you consider discovering your inner historical costumer next time you get dressed. And remember, our new weekly mini-sode episodes drop every Thursday. Each week, we address the questions posed by you, our listeners. So don't forget to either direct message us on Instagram, or you can also email us directly at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And don't forget for images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And before we forget, please head over to tpublic.com forward slash dressed, where you will find brand new merchandise for dressed. Um, some of these designs include a design paying tribute to Charles Frederick Worth, which says know your worth on it. And you can get teas, totes, mugs, even cell phone cases, lots of different products. Absolutely love that shirt. And one of my personal favorites is our new design, Poiret All Day. So like me, you can wear your love for one of the greatest fashion design rebels in history, Paul Poiret. And last but certainly not least is our Elsa Scaparelli flower design. Um, And this design was specifically made for dress by our friend, the artist Loretta Mae Hirsch. And it pays a really beautiful homage to uh, one of our favorite female couturiers. 
So head on over to tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress to get all your dress merch and join April and I in wearing fashion history. And special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you on Thursday. Thursday.